Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Thomas Weber, the managing partner of LGT Capital Partners, where he's been for 33 years. LGT, slightly unusual one, slightly from left field here. LGT is in fact the largest privately owned bank and asset manager in the world. Owned by the Liechtenstein Royal Family, they're bringing to market in Australia, or have brought to market, a strategy to give investors access to alternative investments. Please remember to keep your feedback coming. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. And remember to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and a reminder that this isn't designed to be, nor is it specific advice. People are encouraged to get their own advice and read all offer documents before they consider investments, etc. Please enjoy the podcast. I hope you enjoy. Thomas Weber, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thomas, perhaps you could give our listeners a bit of background of yourself and your background in investment markets. Yes. I actually grew up in, uh, in Germany, went to school in Cologne and then in the United States and then uh, subsequently in Switzerland and started to work at LGT Group um, almost 33 years ago. I started uh, as the assistant to the CEO at that point in time and then in traditional um, asset management. And then in um, 1998 um, was one of the co-founders of LGT Capital Partners, which is the asset manager of the LGT Group. Okay, so 33 years, you must have started when you were 10. <laughs> no, no. So who is IGT? LGT um, is the asset manager that belongs to uh, the princely family of Liechtenstein. So we were basically created to manage the wealth of uh, the princely family of Liechtenstein along the line of the endowment style portfolio and have developed into an international asset management firm running uh, more than $80 billion today with more than 600 people uh, around the world. So I can hear our listeners saying, wow, um, this is unusual. First, they're going to say, where is Liechtenstein is what, and what is Liechtenstein and, and who is the prince and the family? So explain, wh- where is Liechtenstein? Liechtenstein is a, is a tiny principality located between Switzerland and, and Austria. It has less than 40,000 inhabitants but is quite wealthy and quite beautiful in, in the middle of the mountains. So I did a little bit of research and I, I was interested to know how it compared from a size perspective. You know, Australians, we like to think in terms of what we know. And I know our largest um, station or large farm is 147 times bigger. <laughs> so you could fit 147 Liechtensteins as a country inside of in, in, inside of that one property, that farm in South Australia. So yes, it's a very small place, bats above its average. Um, tell us about the royal family and why they set up an investment manager. Yes, I mean, the royal family goes back uh, 900 years in, in history. And most of the time there, they were in Vienna, part of the Habsburg Empire. And about 300 years ago, they bought two provinces that later became Liechtenstein to have their status elevated in Vienna. 
And actually, the first prince that took residence in Liechtenstein was the father of the currently reigning prince, Hans Adam. And um, that was like 18, 90 years ago. And since then, the small principality has, has really thrived. The wealth of um, the family is, is divided in many different areas. They, they own large um, farms and, and forests in Austria. They have one of the largest privately held art collection. And the financial wealth is, is managed through us. It basically came about through uh, by selling parts of the asset management division um, of LGT Group in 1998 to Invesco and AIM. And that um, resulted in proceeds of a billion dollars. And that billion dollars created the foundation for the LGT Group endowment. Okay, one of the things I heard you said they bought the principality. I, I'd love to know what they paid for it and what that would be adjusted to in today's in today's terms, whether it was a good deal or not. I suspect it was. It, it probably was because it elevated their status and they were they were able to reside, go there later on after the Second World War, where also some of the properties in the Czech Republic were expropriated. Now explain for the listeners, you referred to an endowment style of uh, asset management. What does that mean and why is that beneficial or why did the family go down that path? Yes. Um, what does endowment management entail? It entails a very long-term investment orientation. It's a growth portfolio, but implemented through a very strict and robust strategic asset allocation, focusing on active management. 90% of the portfolio uh, is managed through active management, and a high allocation to external managers, best-in-class talent in all these different uh, asset classes, and more than 50% in alternatives like private equity, liquid alternatives or hedge funds or insurance-linked securities in order to achieve a return that almost matches equity returns, albeit with a much, much lower volatility. And that's what the North American endowments have done for, for many, many years. David Swenson started that in 1985 and uh, he developed his endowment from a billion to $44 billion. He unfortunately passed away about a year ago. But uh, that, that's a good um, example of endowment style investment that, that we aspire to, to follow. So the key thing that I hear that our, I think our listeners will probably want to focus on is equity style returns with less volatility. Tell us how you do that and, and maybe start off with the conversation and tell us about the fund or the investment vehicle that you've launched in Australia last year. That's actually a very interesting proposition that we launched in Australia because the endowment portfolio encompasses all liquid asset classes as well as the alternative asset classes. And uh, the, the portfolio for the Australian market and for other markets is a carve-out of the endowment portfolio only focusing on the alternatives. So you can basically complement your traditional portfolio with a more esoteric or exotic asset classes, if you feel like. And what are they made up of? So the vast majority, about half is private private markets, mm -hmm. private equity and private markets. Then um, we have liquid alternatives and we have alternative income strategies. And all these strategies are uh, designed to complement traditional asset classes, i.e. have different return drivers, have low correlation, and generate returns independent of the traditional market beaters, equity, uh, credit, interest rates, and the like. 
And the strategy is managing how much money? Um, the overall strategy assets in, over the overall firm is in excess of 20 billion. The product that we launched in Australia uh, currently, uh, we launched it last year, currently runs about 75 million um, Australian dollars. But I guess the key point is it's leveraging off that larger group strategy of that 20 billion. So it's able to create diversification in just creating a feeder fund into that. Is that correct? Exactly. And it's all about, I mean, the endowment, all investors around the world and the Australian investors invest in the same product. So there is not the endowment portfolio for the prints and then there's some derivatives. It's exactly the, the same portfolio is creating a lot of alignment of interest. So when you talk about alignment, you're saying that people are able to get the exact same asset allocation, investment allocation, and exposure to the same investments that the prince is getting and the family, the, the royal family of Liechtenstein is getting. Exactly. Okay. Let's break out and talk about a little bit about those subparts, if you like, in, in private markets. So I think what you're telling me is this is allowing investors who might have their Australian equities and their international equities and their traditional bonds, but they may struggle to get access to um, alternates and private markets, an area where many people think superior returns exist. Um, can you break out and give some examples for our listeners uh, of some of the investments within those asset classes, please? Yeah, if you look at the private markets component, which is, as I said, about half of the Australian portfolios, we are building conservative private market portfolios. So we focus on mid-market buyout strategies and um, the portfolio is very well diversified in terms of managers, in terms of geographies, investment styles, the vast majority is in, in buyouts. We have a smaller allocation to venture capital, which is currently approaching um, um, 20% because of the recently very, very positive performance. In terms of industries, very diversified um, technology. We currently have a 25%. We have allocations across the globe. We have a significant allocation also in the Asian markets, around 17%. Basically, want, we want to get provide access to a broadly diversified portfolios of private equity managers of different styles, geographies across the world. So how many different managers and how many different investment positions would, if someone put a million dollars into this strategy, how many different strategies would they get access to an underlying investment? I'm just trying to get a, a feel for that quantum and spread. Um, if you stay for the private equity side for a while, we have more than 100 underlying GP investments in, in this portfolio, investing then in individual companies. So that's very diversified. If you look, for example, on the liquid alternatives side, which is about 17% of the uh, Australian portfolio, um, we believe in concentration, so we don't want to over-diversify. So we've concentrated a portfolio of discretionary managers of about 15 of systematic managers a little bit higher higher than that. And what's liquid alternatives made up of? Basically, it's giving you access to different um, risk return characteristics without a lot of market direction. So we have two components. We have a discretionary part, and we have invested in liquid alternatives and hedge funds for many, many years. And there are quite a few pitfalls associated with investing in that strategy. First, you tend to have no transparency. You don't 
tend to have control because you can only redeem quarterly or monthly and so on. And in many cases, they're quite expensive. So we have addressed some of, and, and you pay for beta. So these are black box closed and uh, futures trading. In a way, in a way. And things. I mean, having invested in hedge funds uh, for more than 25 years, um, we've come to the conclusion that you have to invest in them in a very transparent form. So we invest in hedge funds through managed accounts. So we see every single position on a daily basis. And if uh, risk parameters are violated, we can take control, which, um, for example, in 2008, fund investors couldn't do. Give, having the full transparency allows us also to understand the strategy to the fullest detail, understand how they make alpha, how um, they do their risk management, and tailor the portfolio to, to our needs. So we don't like hedge funds with a lot of equity beta, which is a little bit different from a lot of North American endowments, because we don't want to pay for beta. So we can structure portfolios. If we have managers that run portfolios with a high net exposure, with our managed account platform, we can structure them in a market neutral way and really get uh, what we want from them, no equity market exposure, and higher alpha for the fees we pay. And talk about the private equity side of things. How do you work out and how do you judge a manager um, to engage them? What do you look for with your experience? Yeah. I mean, private equity is an asset class that has the widest dispersion of returns. If you look at top quartile and bottom quartile managers, the range is 30% or so. Fixed income is perhaps 2% or so. So it really pays off to pay to, to identify the best managers. And of course, every manager that pitches his product to you is a top quarter manager at least. So it really takes a lot of work to, to weed through all, all the stuff and information. So at first, you have to analyze what type of investment performance and experience this manager really has had. Um, and you have to see what is the background. Has the team worked together? Um, we have different angles from which we do due diligence on the content side, on the background side. We, we employ independent background checks. And it's basically with a skeptical mindset, really trying to pinch hole into the proposition that the managers give to you. And if, if that doesn't work, finally, you have to approve the manager. And in private equity, it's so important that you get access to the best managers. Um, because they're also capacity constrained, um, in particular in the mid-market segment that we are playing in, because so much money is flowing into private equity and new investors are trying to deploy capital, the good managers are filling up very, very fast and having been there early, having established a relationship, having followed teams that spin out from existing firms to smaller ones and being able to judge what they did in the in the bigger firm is really, really very important. So we've done that for more more than 20 years and have created a great network, we believe, and have access to good managers. So what's more difficult, finding the good managers or getting them to accept your money? I think it's both. Um, many managers find you, but they might not be the best ones. So you really have to do active sourcing to have your eyes and ears open to see when managers spin out, where they are. And then we have a reputation of being a good um, manager because we understand the strategies very well. We, we, we do good due diligence and we're nice people. And you'll, you'll keep the money there and it won't be hot money that comes in and out, which I'd imagine the managers don't want. Exactly. And one of the concepts that 
is throughout all our investment management from the asset allocation to private equity is if we are tactical, we want to be counter-cyclical. So when, when managers have a problem and we understand why, it's probably better to give additional capital. It's the difference between money-weighted and capital-weighted performance. Um, a lot of people deploy capital after good performance, but um, if you have conviction in the manager and give him money when he's in a drawdown, he'll make it up. So the capital-weighted uh, performance is even greater. So what are the red flags if a manager comes in with certain things that they're telling you or certain behaviours? What are the things that you say, oh, this is something that makes me feel uneasy? Yeah, I mean, what are the, the main red flags? It's asset growth in, in all industry and alternatives. There's so much money flowing into it. And um, when we invest in a manager, we just discuss capacity. And they might find new explanations why this capacity is now much, much greater. And then, of course... They have a remarkable way of justifying it when they get to that level and telling you why it's much better for them. You know, I, I exactly. know we've had managers on where they tell us, oh, this will be closed off at 700 million, and then you go back and they're at 850. Oh, no, no, this gives us access to X, Y, and Z, and it's much better to do it this way. Okay, so capacity, what, what exactly. are some of the others? Next thing is team stability. I mm -hmm. think team stability, and um, we always talk to people, senior people that left. Most of the managers provide you access. Sometimes it's more difficult, but we always try to get that side. Even if they have contractual agreements, you can listen, you can hear what they say. Style drift, if they think um, they pursue different markets than they're used to, it might be to address capacity, might be other reasons. They suddenly become experts at crypto and decentralized finance, etc. Yeah, There's also a life cycle in, in terms of a manager when they start, they're young and hungry, and at the end, they might be fat and happy, and mm -hmm. do the fat and happy people do their share with the next generation. So there are many elements that, that you have to scrutinize. And the geography of these managers, and do you have any preferences? Global. I think there are so many opportunities in, in all areas uh, across the globe. I mean, we, of, we have offices ranging from the US to Australia, China, Hong Kong. We, we see very interesting opportunities across the globe. In Europe, it's very regional, so you need to be on the ground, ground speak the local languages. In Hong Kong, um, we have a large office that has been on the ground for more than 10 years. Of course, you have to be in the US, so global. So if we just concentrate and stay with the sort of private equity part of things. What are, what are the differences that you see in the managers and the generalised, and this is a very broad generalisation. I know we've recorded podcasts and been uh, you know, in the sort of area of just north of New York where there's a lot of money managers, a lot of hedge funds, um, and, and they're a very different style of manager, when typically to the West Coast, you know, sort of venture capital type of uh, manager globally what are some of the trends that you see and what do you your preference or, or what are you looking out for when you navigate the different styles I mean you want to go off the beaten track also because sometimes you find talent in areas that that you didn't expect you find talent in, in spe specific industries that don't happen to be around New York or the Silicon Valley and so on so so really try to find the hidden gems through our network through talking to other investors or just being on the ground and picking up um, new managers from, from yeah, some 
interesting sources. Now, you made an interesting point that you like it when the managers are you know, hungry and they might be younger and so forth. Um, but you also said at the same time, have they got a good track record? Mm-hmm. Now, if they've got a really good track record, the likelihood of them being younger and still very hungry may not coincide with each other. How do you manage that? Yes. I should also caveat that young and hungry, if they're young and hungry and have no skin in the game, they, they can pursue a free option. So if they're great, they earn a lot of performance fee and otherwise they don't. So you also have to, to look at that. But we always have been, um, have been open to investing into earlier managers without real numbers. Because um, in some cases you can ascertain the quality of a manager from... Um, they may have a track record from where they were before. Yes, or even if they don't have that, you can ascertain where they worked before, what type of references are, how do they set up the business. I mean, if you wait till managers have a good track record to, for, for three years or so, a lot of interesting opportunities you might forego. One of the things I always like to do is focus on how they're remunerated because quite often on this show we've spoken to more than 110 different investment managers or things in the leading mind in wealth, leading minds in wealth management and, and quite often people will say the objective of this investment strategy is X, Y and Z but we get paid through system A which may or may not correlate with the objectives. So with remuneration and performance fees, what are you looking for and what do you prefer in that area? Yes. If I, if I talk about liquid alternatives for a second, if you pay, mm-hmm. I mean, 2 and 20, hardly anybody pays anyway, but if you pay 1 and 20 for 60, 70% beta exposure over a 20-year bull market, that's just too much. So we try to implement incentive structures where we are paid on real alpha, over a particular benchmark that takes out the beta risk. And uh, if that's not possible, we try to structure the portfolios in a way that um, you don't have alpha. So as an example, technology has been an interesting thematic for, for, for many investors. In the liquid alternatives part, we don't want to take a lot of directional exposure. So one of our long-standing manager who runs a 60% net um, long fund we created a um, bespoke managed account with him where we have 0 to 20% exposure and um, a very high allocation to his short strategy, which we found created most of the, uh, most of the alpha in his historical track record. So we pay uh, a normal management fee and performance fee, but on a 0 to 20% net exposure, so hence on alpha. And are the managers always aware where their performance is coming from, or do you sometimes have to point it out to them? Most of the times they do, but we have with with all the data, position data, we have to very we do very interesting analyses, and they sometimes are surprised how their performance have come about. We look at factor exposures, we look at sector exposures, concentration, all these kind of things. Sometimes the quantitative di- data supports what they thought they do in the first place. Sometimes they are surprised about some of the analyses. Yeah, and Thomas. Tell us a little bit about the track record. How has this style of investment worked through time? Yes, I think if you look at um, the the performance of the uh, Australian portfolio, 
which of course just was recently launched, but you look at the building blocks of the endowment that have been in existence for more than 20 years, mm -hmm. it has a very, very stable track record of um, roughly 10%. And even in difficult periods like 2008, it was slightly positive. And I, if I'm, am I right in thinking the objective of the strategy is to return eight to 12% per annum through the cycle? Yes. And, and you alluded to very good times, you know, and, and venture capitals run up in the portfolio by the sound of it. Um, how are you currently thinking about technology? It's quite topical in the media here in Australia. Uh, we've had, you know, one of the unicorns um, that's been revalued down 30% by an investor, not based on a new round, um, just based on the public market comparables which is putting pressure on all the other early stage venture capital funds, how do they handle that? And then all the other large industry investors who have exposure to that, how they handle that, et cetera. Um, how are you thinking about technology? I, I heard you a moment ago say, we like to be contrarian. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's been a huge roll off in the last three months at, uh, in NASDAQ, high growth technology, unprofitable technology. Um, how are you handling or thinking about that exposure to, te to technology within the portfolio? Mm -hmm. In general and principally, we believe in rebalancing in all the different asset classes. And we don't have a strong thematic approach throughout our portfolio. We believe in the long-term strategic asset allocation plus rebalancing and look at opportunities bottom up. So um, we didn't say we like more technology but it um, increased its exposure through the interesting opportunities. So um, we will not do an overlay and say, now technology is extremely interesting, and now we reduce it. So we basically follow the opportunities that pop up bottom up. And talk about some of the other asset classes that you get exposure to in the uh, Australian vehicle, if you could, yeah. please. If we look at... Um, the alternative income portion. Mm -hmm. One uh, investment strategy that is really uncorrelated to financial markets is insurance-linked securities, mm -hmm. that catastrophe bonds and contracts that act like insurance against um, hurricanes, wildfires, and so on. This so this is, is exposure to the reinsurance risk? Yep, more or less. Correct. Yep. yep, we've had a podcast on this. Our listeners will, may remember. Okay. And... Um, that, for example, had some more difficult years over the last couple of years. But by nature, quotation mark, mm -hmm. it's, it's uncorrelated to the financial markets. And we have invested in this asset class since 2003. And we think it's, it's a very interesting diversifier. The whole concept of the multi-alternatives portfolio, as it is called, is to have low correlation and diversification elements to the traditional markets. And that's... that's um, Typical, typical example of it. Okay, and is there much exposure to private debt? We have private debt. We have a combination um, of some direct lending, some more opportunistic strategies, some trade finance. Um, but also there, you have to be careful um, whether the premium you earn on the private market side is really commensurate for the risk because everybody was looking for alternative income strategy, so to speak, and and um, we have to analyze what are interesting opportunities. What we all also do, um, we can be opportunistic in, in all of the buckets, 
And for example, in 2000, when the credit markets um, sold off, um, we launched a mandate with one of our managers um, in, in, the, in the course of a, yeah, one or two weeks to take advantage of these opportunities um, on the credit side in a combination of private and partly liquid because there was such a big sell-off, coming back to this counter-cyclical element. So Thomas, we've covered a lot of ground here. What should I have asked you that I haven't asked you yet? <laughs> that's interesting because that's a question we always ask at the end um, of due diligence meetings. One question you could have asked is what um, What is the relative attractiveness of the multi-alternatives multi portfolio right now, uh, given that, for example, private markets had fantastic, uh, had fantastic performances last year and the year prior? And I would argue, I think, in particular on private markets, you shouldn't extrapolate um, the recent performance. And um, whether the performance uh, will be good of the multi-alternatives portfolio um, you have to gauge and put into perspective to the traditional markets. When we do our asset allocation review every year for the endowment portfolio, we look at the expected returns and the alternative asset classes still have a significant outperformance of the traditional ones. And although private equity has a lower expected return than we've seen over the last two years, it still has the highest, um, highest return expectations of all the asset classes in the endowment. There you go. I'm glad I asked that of you and well answered. Thank you very much. Thomas, thank you very much for joining me at Inside the Rope. I'm sure our listeners will enjoy. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.